So this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus is a disciple maker, that he was the first disciple maker, and that's why he calls his people, his disciples, to be disciple makers. Now, when we think about the term disciple, we who have been in the church for a long time sort of have an idea of what that means, but to give you some context to that word, when I was in middle school, and I was, uh, I was homeschooled as a child when I was in middle school, I became very interested in archaeology. That is, uh, the people who dig up bones in old um, towns and things like that and discover new places. I became very interested in archaeology and thought that that was something that I would want to do one day when I grew up. And so my dad, who was my teacher at the time, actually knew an archaeologist in the church. And so he said, well, you know, this person is actually on a trip right now, so I can't get you with them. But in the meantime, how about for your final research paper, you do a paper on archaeology. And then that'll give you an idea of if that's something you're interested in. Well, after writing an eight-page paper in middle school on archaeology, I no longer was interested in archaeology. But what my dad was proposing and offering was for me to actually go with an archaeologist to follow them, to shadow them, to learn from them, to do almost like an apprenticeship type thing with them. And for, for me to do that, in a way, I would have become that person's disciple. You see, in the context of Jewish culture, a rabbi was a, 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 um, a highly honored teacher and for that rabbi to go out and pick people to be their disciple, what they were saying is, follow me, be with me, and learn from me. And that's what Jesus does in this passage. What you're going to see is he goes out and he picks these 12 and he says, follow me and be with me and learn from me. And so in a way, disciples and, and discipleship is the same as terms that we use like shadowing, job shadowing, or apprenticeship, or mentorship, or following someone uh, to, in order to learn from them. And so what we'll see in this passage, and as you see in the New Testament structure, that's really what it means to be a disciple, and to be a disciple maker, is that idea of job shadowing. You're just, you're just being with someone, following them, and learning from them. So as we come to our passage this morning, what we're going to see is that Jesus makes disciples who make disciples of all nations. Jesus makes disciples who make disciples of all nations. If you have your worship guide, you see how we're going to break this down into four sections from our passage. And if you have one of these Mark journals, you can be following along and taking notes and underlining and, and whatever you want to do with that as we follow along. If you do not have one of these, we still, I believe, have a few extras in the back. This is just a, a Gospel of Mark journal. It's got a, the, the, you can see, I've noted mine all up, but it's got the scripture on one side and the empty note page on the other. If you would like one of those, if you raise your hand right now, we have someone that can grab one and, and uh, provide that for you. So if you want one, just raise your hand and we'll get one to you. The first thing I want to look at this morning is from verses 7 through 12. Why do you follow Jesus? What you saw as Betty was reading, if you were following along, is that you have this great crowd that begins to follow Jesus. 
And why were they doing that? Well, it says because he had been healing many people. This great crowd heard all that he was doing, and they came to him. And because of the crowd, they were almost going to crush him. So you have this huge crowd of people that are following Jesus, trying to get close to Jesus. And what is the, what is the scripture and what does Mark hint at is their main motivation. Their main motivation is what Jesus is doing for people. Their main motivation for coming to Jesus and following Jesus is, what will he do for me? Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, I already kind of spoke on this topic, but a lot of people in the church today follow Jesus or, or act like they're following Jesus simply because of what they hope Jesus will do for them. How is he going to change my life? How is he going to provide a job promotion for me? How is he going to boost my bank account? Or how is he going to make me healthier or better? How is he going to prosper my life? And friends, if your main motivation for following Jesus is to get things from Jesus, that's not the reason to be in a relationship with him. Jesus was calling disciples to himself, as we'll see in a second, simply to be with him, to be in relationship with him. Let me ask you a question. What other relationship functions the way a lot of Christians' relationship functions with Jesus? Imagine in a marriage if the people were only in that marriage because of what they could get from each other. Imagine in a, in a parent-child relationship, you are parenting a child simply for what you can get out of that child, whether it's chores done around the house or whether it's a good performance on the field so that you feel better as a parent and you get some sense of self-satisfaction because of your child's performance on the field or in the classroom. Some parents operate that way, don't they? And it's sad to see on the sideline. But what about a, a child who their only relationship with their parent is they come to them when they need something? That's heartbreaking, isn't it, for the parent? You know, Dad, I'm in trouble again. Could you give me, you know, 500 bucks? Dad, I can't, I can't pay my insurance this week. Mom, um, I had something go on. Can you help me? Now, parents who love their child want to help their child, don't they? But they also want a relationship with that child. What about in, in, in work? You know, what if your only relationship with coworkers was what you could get out of each other rather than be in relationship? All of these situations, all of these relationships, we know when there's a poisonous or toxic or bad relationship if one of those partners in that relationship is only in it for what they can get from the other. And yet so many Christians operate in that exact way with Jesus. They pray when they need something. Let me ask you something. How's your prayer life? When do you pray? When things are going bad and you need help? When you need something from God? When you need something? When you need Him to intervene and change a situation? Listen, I've said this before. I'll say it again. He wants us to pray those things. Just like the loving parent wants their child to come for, to them when they're in need. But if that's the only time you're interacting with your Savior, who has said, I have come to be your friend, 
What kind of relationship is that? And so Jesus is calling his disciples to himself to be in relationship with him, to know him and love him. And so that's the first thing we see is you've got this great crowd following Jesus purely for the motive of just getting things out of him. So our, our primary motivation for being in a relationship with Jesus is not to get stuff from him, but to get him. So that's the first thing we see. And then we get this section, 13 through 19, where Jesus calls his disciples. Now I wanted to point out a few things before I'm actually going to try in an amount of time uh, to break down who all these men are. Because I think that will be helpful for us in applying this section. But the first thing we see is that Jesus, he chooses 12. Now that's not a coincidence. If you think about the Old Testament system and how many tribes are there. How many leaders of the tribes are there? There's 12. And so in the New Testament system, Jesus is subtly pointing out that he's starting something new. He, he's entering into a new covenant with his people, and part of that covenant is going to be, there's going to be new foundational leadership there. And so if you go all the way fast forward to the book of Revelation, it talks about there's 12 pillars of the church, and those pillars are the apostles. And, and it's, as we'll see, it's not Judas. Judas gets replaced. But those 12, it's foundational. That's why Ephesians says that our Christian faith is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, is it because these men were so great that we follow their leadership? No. It's because God chose these men to represent him as his disciples on earth and that he empowered them by his Holy Spirit to produce the truth of the gospel and the truth of Scripture, which we still follow today. And so Jesus is calling these twelve to himself, and what is he primarily calling them to do? Look in your passage in that section of 13 to 14. It says in 14, he appointed twelve that they might be with him. Again, this is that idea of apprenticeship or followship, right? He just said, hey, come, follow me, and be with me. In order to learn from me, in order to be in a relationship with me, come be with me. Now, if you were to fast forward after this story to Acts chapter 4, in verse 13, some of the disciples are there, and the, uh, the Sanhedrin are there, and the other um, people who are not believers in Jesus, they see these disciples and they see their courage and they are intimidated by these disciples. And it says that one of the reasons they are intimidated by these disciples' courage and confidence is because they recognize that these men, these simple men, had been with Jesus. One of the defining markers of a disciple of Jesus is that they have been with him in relationship. They have learned from Jesus himself that they are abiding in Christ's love. Just like Jesus said in John 15, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So with Jesus is a primary description of the disciples. 
It also says that he would send these men out to preach. He would, they would preach to the nations and that they would have authority from Jesus to cast out demons. Now, this, I believe this is talking specifically about these apostles at the time, that this was an authenticating power that Jesus gave to their witness at the time. But, but many similar things are true for Christians today. Jesus gives us authority. The Great Commission, Jesus came to his disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. Do you see the overlap of, of the Great Commission and what Jesus has called all of us to be as his disciples, to be disciple-makers of all nations? Now, if you got your notepad and you're a note-taker, you know, get it ready because we're going to try to go through these names real quick. And I want to give you some basic understandings of who these men were. The first that we get here is Peter, also known as Simon in the New Testament in the letters of Paul. He's, he's also mentioned as Cephas, which was his Aramaic name. The nickname that Jesus gave him was Rocky. Right? Everybody know Rocky Balboa? The Peter means rock. So in a way, Jesus was calling him Rocky. Why? Because he was a confident person. He was someone that Jesus would use to build and grow the church. What we know about Peter is that he was one of those people who was quick to speak and slow to listen and slow to think. In other words, he was kind of impulsive. You know any impulsive people? Are you an impulsive person? Hey, good news, Jesus can use you. So Peter... Um, was impulsive. He's the only disciple I'm aware of, I didn't study this in depth, that actually mentions who he was married. So Peter had a wife, he had a mother-in-law, that's mentioned in scripture. He would, would after Jesus rose and went to heaven, he would become a main preacher and pastor and evangelist in Rome and in Antioch. We also see in Galatians and in Acts that Peter had racist tendencies. Some of you don't want me to say that. Peter was a racist before Jesus changed him by the power of the Holy Spirit. He hated Gentiles. And yet, Jesus changed him to no longer be that way. That's good news too, isn't it? Okay, so there's Peter. Then you got James. James and John. James and John are mentioned by Jesus to be the sons of thunder. And so what we understand from other passages that they were kind of one of those, they were like justice people. They wanted God's justice to show up. They wanted his wrath to be poured out on sinners. They wanted God to show up in powerful ways and smite his enemies. They, didn't, they were kind of not so strong on the mercy and compassion side. And so they, they were all about God's wrath and justice. You know, at one point they said, hey, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven on these people? <laughs> whoa, 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 hold on. Right? So there's the sons of thunder, James and John. Now, James actually was killed. He was the one disciple in Scripture mentioned that was killed by the sword, by Herod. John would then become the pastor, evangelist, preacher, the writer of Scripture who would live to old age. He's the only disciple who was a faithful follower of Jesus that actually died of old age that we know of. All the others were persecuted to death. So that's James and John. Andrew is Peter's brother. 
Andrew is actually the one who brought Peter to Jesus. He was the first evangelist. He went to Simon, his brother, and said, we think we found the Messiah. Come and see him. Come and meet him. Now, Andrew, this was an interesting fact I learned this past week. Andrew's mission was actually around the border of the Black Sea. Anybody recognize that from recent news? Andrew, St. Andrew, Peter's brother, was a missionary to Ukraine. And specifically in uh, church history, Kiev, the capital city of Ukraine, which you've heard a lot about, was one of his main missions focuses. Thought, thought that was pretty interesting. St. Andrew was actually also killed on a cross, but the cross he was killed on was an X-shaped cross, so his hands were up here and his feet were you know, spread out down below. It's called often the St. Andrew's Cross. Philip, as we continue through, was a friend of Bartholomew, who actually brought Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, which we'll see in a second, um, brought Nathaniel to Jesus. Uh, the, the story there, as we go to Nathaniel, so that's Bartholomew. They actually, uh, church history seems to note that they did ministry together. After Jesus ascended, they went on missionary journeys together to places like India and the Middle East and even parts of Africa. So Philip and Bartholomew kind of go together. Jesus actually said of Bartholomew, Nathaniel, that there is no deceit in this one. Look at this one who there is no deceit. And Nathaniel actually says, how do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree before your friend came and got you. And Nathaniel responded, wow, this really is the Son of God. <laughs> and Jesus said, listen, you're going to see power, more powerful things than just me being able to tell you you were sitting under a fig tree. If you come under my kingdom, you're going to see more powerful things than that. So that's Philip and Bartholomew mentioned here. And then you get Matthew. Now, we talked about Matthew a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to go into detail there. But Matthew was a tax collector. He was a traitor of the Jewish people. He would have been seen as a traitor, as a sellout. But what's interesting is his mission after Jesus ascended was in Jerusalem among his people. Isn't that cool? And his gospel, the gospel of Matthew, is written specifically more specifically to the Jewish people. It shows the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies more than any other gospel. So here's Matthew, a tax collector, who is seen as a sellout, a hater of God's Israelite people, who then becomes a primary missionary and evangelist to God's people. Isn't that, I just love that kind of stuff. I'm also a church history guy. I love church history. So we're getting into the early, early, early church history. Now Thomas, often known as Doubting Thomas, was also probably a twin, fun fact. Uh, Didymus, Thomas, Didymus um, means twin. He was the doubter, the skeptic, the one who always wanted to be shown proof and evidence. So, you know, he was the one that wanted to see the nails in the hands and the, and the spear wound in the side of Jesus. Also, while Jesus was on earth, they, uh, Jesus said, now let's go to Jerusalem. And Thomas was the one that said, yeah, let's go to our deaths. That's a great idea. Right? So he's the doubter, the skeptic. He wants proof and evidence of his faith. So I like to make the joke that he was the first Reformed Presbyterian. Right? We want to see evidence. We want to see the facts. We're, we're a little weak on the faith side and just believing what God's power can do. Can we be honest with ourselves about that? All right? So there's Thomas, uh, the patron saint of Presbyterians. I'm just kidding. All right. Uh, then you get James, another James, called the Lesser. 
That was his nickname. Uh, this might have meant that, he, meant that he was younger, but actually most historical people think it's because he was the shorter of the two. So if you're, if you're you know, um, vertically challenged, Jesus can use you. Isn't that good news? So there you go. Um, hey, got the amen, right? Um, so James the, the lesser or James the little, the son of Alphaeus. Then you get Thaddeus. Um, Thaddeus and James the lesser possibly were related somehow um, from different passages in Scripture. But Thaddeus also had the name of Judas. I know this is starting to get a little confusing. But also probably a zealot. Now I'm going to explain what that means in a second. Um, because Simon, the next person on the list, is also a zealot. So what does that mean? You've got Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot. Well, a zealot was a person who was a loyalist, a nationalist, um, someone who was very committed to their people and their way of life. You could even say they were probably a traditionalist in many ways, the way things had always been in the Jewish culture. And this was specific specifically dealing with the Jewish people. So they were, they were those loyalist type. Now, again, this could kind of rub some people the wrong way, but the closest um, equivalent we have to this today is this whole division between Republican and Democrat. The zealots were known for being insurrectionist. They were, they were zealous for their people to the point of violence. And so on, on both sides of the spectrum, you've got the tax collectors who are the traitors of God's people, and then you've got the zealots who are zealous for God's people. These are the people that instead of walking around saying America, they probably would have been like Jerusalem, right? All right, come on. Thank you. All right, so you've got, so you got these zealots, right? Now, what's interesting is that Jesus called the tax collector and the zealots to be his people the Republicans and the Democrats, the leftists and the, the, the rights, right, the conservatives, all people coming into his kingdom to be his people. And then you get Judas, who it says, actually, spoiler alert, is the one who would betray him. Now, all of this list, why did I go through this in detail? One of the reasons I wanted to go through this in some detail is because I want you to see the diversity that is represented amongst Jesus' disciples. There's a reason he called these different men from their different backgrounds. Why? To show that it's not by the might and power and ability and even the morality of men that I'm going to build my kingdom, but it's by my grace and my power and my authority that I'm making disciples. Do you see that? And so if any of those men, as I describe their characteristics, if part of you was like, oh yeah, I can relate, I'm short, or I'm a zealot, or I'm a sinner, or I'm this, or I'm that, I'm impulsive, what do we know about Jesus' disciple and his power and his grace? He can use you. He can use sinners. You know why he can use sinners? This is his only option right? <laughs> we have to believe that he can use sinners because that's his only option. And so he does, by his grace and by his power, use sinners. He calls sinners first to follow him and be with him. 
And then he uses them for his glory. So that's what we see in this list of the disciples. And then we get into this section where Jesus gets into kind of a confrontational topic amongst believers today. In verses 20 through 30, he starts to talk about this, what we'll call the eternal sin or the unforgivable sin. Now, I wanted to look at a few of the things he says here. So they, the, the, the scribes of the Pharisees, they had come and they accused Jesus, if you see in verse 22, they accused Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub was another name for the devil or some kind of evil worker force that was against God's people. And so there, this was a very serious accusation to say that Jesus was possessed by some kind of demon. And so Jesus goes into this whole explanation. How can Satan be against himself? Why would the devil allow his, his followers, one that he would possess, to cast out his own people, his own demons, out of people? And so Jesus is really um, confronting their illogical conclusion. But then he gets into a very serious truth. He says this, starting at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And so the question here that a lot of people have is, so what is that? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Have I, have I done that? Have I committed a sin to the point that I could not be forgiven? Have I committed the eternal sin that God would punish me forever because of this one sin that I've committed, the unpardonable, the unforgivable, the eternal sin? Have I done that? A lot of people have that question and that fear. So the question for us is, what is Jesus talking about? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And again, there's different interpretations of this, but I want to give you a very simple explanation that I think is true and that we can get from this passage. Jesus shows up as the Son of God, the Messiah. And the scribes did not recognize Him as that. They couldn't see that He was the promised one who had come to save His people from their sins. And so instead of receiving and accepting Him as the Savior, they reject Him and say He's the enemy. And Jesus says, because they have blasphemed him and his name, that that's actually blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, what's the Holy Spirit's role? What did Jesus promise that the Spirit would come and do? Jesus said the Spirit will come and convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That is, their sin because they need a Savior Righteousness because they are not righteous in and of themselves, but they need a righteousness from God that's given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And of judgment because those who do not believe in this Jesus will receive the judgment of God's wrath forever. That's why the Holy Spirit came, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And this Spirit, the Helper, the companion of God's people, Jesus said, would come to bear witness about me, about Christ. And so what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? 
Very simply, it's rejecting Jesus. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Savior for sinners, you will face eternal judgment. And that's very clear in Scripture. And so why is unbelief, the way we can say this, is that unbelief is the eternal sin, the unforgivable sin? Why is not believing in Jesus the eternal sin? Because it's the only sin that unless you believe in Jesus, it's the only sin that keeps all other sins from being forgiven. Do you see that? And so let me just ask you a question. Do you believe in this Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners? That's been our theme for this book, hasn't it? Jesus himself said, I came to seek and save the lost. I came not for those who are well, but for the sick. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. And so, friends, if you're a sinner, there's good news out there. Jesus has come to save you. And all you have to do is believe. Believe that Jesus came into the world. Believe that he lived a righteous and perfect life. Believe that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. That he bore the eternal punishment of God for sins. And that he rose from the dead. And that when he promised to forgive and give eternal life to anyone who believed in him, that he meant it. And that the Holy Spirit has come into the world to convince people of this truth. So to reject Jesus is to reject the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Now I think for believers there is a warning here. And that is this. In the New Testament we are told that we can still resist the Holy Spirit. And that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And so what does it mean to then continue sinning against the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit's work in the believer's life is to change them, to sanctify them, and to help them walk in repentance and faith. And so how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? We grieve the Holy Spirit by saying, no, I don't want you to take over. I don't want to change that way of life. I don't want to give up that sin we can resist the Holy Spirit by saying, I don't want to bear your fruit. I don't want to be more loving and joyful and patient and kind and gentle and good and self-controlling. I don't want to be those things. But Jesus has said the Spirit has come and He has come to give life to dead sinners and then to sanctify them by His power. And so for believers, yes, we can resist and grieve the Holy Spirit, but if we're truly trusting in Jesus, then we have, we have um, disqualified ourselves from ever committing the unpardonable sin. And that's good. That's, that's encouraging. And so if you're, if you're out there, one of the things I've heard people say is, if you're out there asking, well, have, am I guilty of the unpardonable sin? Or am I possibly going to commit the unpardonable sin? I would say for most people who are asking that question, you don't have to worry. Because you wouldn't care. But I think there is a still a strong exhortation here to trust Jesus. Believe on Him and be forgiven. And then the last thing we get from this passage is that um, 
Who is Jesus' family? So look at those verses for a few minutes with me. 31 to 35. It said, Jesus' mother and brothers came. They were standing outside, um, and they sent to him and called him. Now, if we need to go back just a couple of verses to 20 and 21. I skipped over that intentionally earlier. So after he has um, been with the crowd, after he has called these disciples to himself, uh, look at verse 21. It says, When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Jesus' family thought he was going crazy. Partly, I think, because he was calling all these different people to be his disciples. Right? Again, there was a cultural understanding that a rabbi, uh, um, um, an honorable rabbi, would call people to follow him and learn from him, but those people were going to be respectable people. And they were going to be somewhat learn, learned people, people who were able to demonstrate that they were knowledgeable of certain things. And so in rabbi culture, rabbinic culture, that's the kind of people that rabbis were supposed to call. People who were respectable, who were knowledgeable, who demonstrated you know, certain aspects of wisdom. And who is Jesus calling? Uneducated fishermen and zealots and tax collectors. <laughs> He's out of his mind. What is he doing? He's not doing this right. And so in our passage here, starting in verse 31, what does it say? It says they were coming to get him. They wanted to seize him. What did they, why, were, why was Jesus' family coming? To stop him. And so what does Jesus say? He says to the crowd sitting around him, your mother and your brother, they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus said, who are my mother and brothers? Who are they? Here are my mother and brothers. You see these people that are sitting around trusting what I have to say, believing who I am? They're my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and brother and sister. And so what do we learn from Jesus here? Jesus prioritizes his spiritual family over his biological family. Jesus prioritizes his church family above his physical family. And if you've ever heard of Nabil Qureshi, he was actually grown, he grew up in a very devout Muslim family. He wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Powerful autobiography that he wrote before he actually passed away. And Nabil Qureshi wrestled through Scripture, wrestled through the Quran, and he was trying to prove that Jesus was not who he was and who Christians thought he was. And Nabil Qureshi, through his study and through his diligent Muslim faith, actually came to realize, wait, this Jesus is for real. And the last step in giving himself over to Christianity was acknowledging, if I go all the way here, my entire family is going to cast me out. You see, for Nabil, who grew up in a very devout Muslim, committed family to each other, strong family ties, Nabil Qureshi had to say, my spiritual family, through faith in Jesus, takes priority. And I have told people here in a small town in the South that what we are called to do here in the South is sometimes very similar. Some of you know this. Some of you grew up in the church, the, the family church. 
Some of you grew up in a culture where this was our grandmothers and our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers church. But in order to follow Jesus, Jesus has called you away from that. That takes sacrifice. Even to be able to go, uh, go show up to family reunions and for everybody to know, oh yeah, they're not going to our church on Sunday mornings, they're going to that other church. That's a big deal for some of you. And yet that's what Jesus shows us himself. Jesus knew what it was like to be the family outcast. He prioritized his church family over his physical, biological family. And so what do we learn from that? Well, 1 John 1, 7 says that because of the blood of Jesus, because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins, we have fellowship with one another. Christians, family, what we understand from the gospel is that what we have in common because of Jesus is far greater than anything the world says should divide us. Whether it's race, whether it's economic status or income, whether it's family background, whether it's where we live, what neighborhood we're in, or whether we're out in the country somewhere, what Jesus says is that because we are fellow believers and co-heirs with Christ, adopted into the family of God, that is a stronger bond than any worldly identification can give you. And that's good news for the people of God. And so, here's something we say sometimes, right, Shanez? What up, fam? <laughs> We're brothers. We're sisters. And we are called to love one another because we have been called into the family of God. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And by this, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. So Jesus made disciples who made disciples of all nations, and he's still doing it today. Would you pray with me?